bit more than we've been running year to date. So the next uh, slide is the overall financial summary. We did have a good month, so that's good news. Uh, we are our net income at 5.9 was 4.8 better than budget. We're continue to do quite well year to date at 61.6, which is a positive variance of 47.1 million. EBITDA earnings before interest, depreciation, and amortization. So it's sort of our our cash flow indicator. Um, we're ahead. 4.2 for the month and 45.2 for the year. So looking very strong. Uh, in regard to revenues, our gross charges were off uh, during the month, 3.4 or just about $11 million. And that's due to the mix of services and the lower volumes. And you can see it in every area off budget. Year to date, we're a lot closer, right? We're only off 1.1%. Um, so uh, definitely not a great month for us from a service perspective. Um, however, our net patient service revenue is actually better than budget by 3.1 million. So our collection rate is 18.5%. So that's 18.5 cents on every dollar charged. Um, that's better than we're running year to date at 18.2 and substantially better than budget at 16.6. So I've reported historically that we've had some one-time pickups in this. Um, and this month is uh, uh, not an exception. Alameda Alliance um, began retro processing claims going back to July 1. So we had an 8% increase effective July 1. It resulted in 2.5 million of revenue recognition in January and a 0.08% uh, difference in our um, collection ratio. So this uh, would have actually been 17.7, uh, which is slightly below our year to date and probably more in line with what we would expect because uh, most of the one-time pickups have been um, recognized. You know, Kim, um, in, the, in the meeting with the Board of Soups yesterday, um, somebody raised the question of, are we collecting all the money that we're entitled to, basically? And, and you were talking about the collection percentage being higher than budgeted. And I wonder if, if there's anybody on the committee that uh, is scratching their head and saying, why are we only collecting 18%? of what we're billing um, and consider that to be good. Um, do you want to spend a minute or two just talking about what, you know, why there's such a big discount off the amount that we bill? Uh, sure, so- uh, Just in, in general terms, I mean. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll do my best here. So uh, we're a safety net organization. We could benchmark ourselves to other safety nets. We have a lot of Medicare and a lot of Medi-Cal uh, and even uninsured, which makes our collection rate lower than, than maybe a Sutter would be. Um, but our charges get raised pretty much every year to be in line with what other hospitals charge, but our collections don't, go, don't increase each year because we raised our prices. So over the past couple of decades, 
you know, this percentage has, has gone down. But what's more important here than that is, are we getting paid what we're supposed to be getting paid, right? And so Epic has a module that allows you to load your contract terms. You can even load like Medicare and Medi-Cal terms, and then it will give you a report if you were accurately paid. We have not built out that module. Uh, we initially started it, and then I had to turn it off when I started because every single uh, claim was not passing through. And so it was causing havoc on posting um, payments. So we need to build that out. We actually have a couple of IT consultants working on it now. And the timing is actually really good for us because we're negotiating our new contracts, right? We've got United and Bright, hoping to have Blue Shield done here in the next couple of weeks and hopefully even Blue Cross. Uh, so those are like our big commercial payers. So we can build those new terms in there and not have to do a build twice, but then we will be able to do a better job answering that question. Are we collecting what we're supposed to collect? Did I miss anything on that, Trustee Fox? No, I think that's great. Thank you. Uh, trust, uh, Trustee Bouquet, you had a question? Yes, Ms. Miranda, thanks for your report. Um, you, you made comment about if we were to benchmark, are there benchmarking data for the other 21 public hospitals? in California, where does 18.5 sit on the spectrum of 21 hospitals? We have less commercial payer mix than like San Mateo and LA and a lot of the other public <laughs> systems. So the, the data that I looked at um, that Whitley prepared for us had us um, pretty much on average or a little below. Um, but I do think that as this committee evolves, we need to uh, do a better job of creating some metrics and benchmarking against them. So that is on my, on my list um, for uh, developing here in the new, near future. I think that would be great to, to contextualize what we said. Uh, and for greater context, do you, do you have an estimate of where, the, uh, where Sutter might be or, or PAMF or what have you? Are our, 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 our so-called privates, are they in the 30s to 40s at med patients or, or, or are they not that much different from us? They're probably um, pretty different. I, I don't know, Trustee Fox, I know you have, you have uh, a similar experience than mine. I don't know if you wanna share anything. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of variables like, like Kim was saying, payer mixes uh, tremendously impacting on your um, you know, your net revenue realization because commercial payers, you know, I think most hospitals are collecting somewhere in the range of 30 to 40% on their commercial billings. Uh, so you could see if, if, if a hospital has 30% commercial instead of our 7%, that would be a huge difference and a big upside for us. And then it also, it also is impacted by how much we've raised our charges every year. Because if, if we raised our charges 5 or 10% a year, the actual uh, changes in reimbursement aren't going to keep up with that price increase. So our yield, net revenue yield on that's going to be lower than another hospital uh, that, that may not have been raising its charges as much.
it's just funny how, uh, you know, one, you know, I've had discussion with people, oh, it's just one extra cent per dollar. But when you, when you sort of amortize that over $3 billion worth of charges, it makes a difference, doesn't it? An extra percent on $3 billion is 30, 30 million. Yeah, so. Do a lot with 30 million. We, we certainly could. So thank, thank you, Ms. Miranda. All right, so uh, this next slide is on the supplemental revenues. Um, and this slide is actually pretty handy because it kind of tells you where the variances are. So you can see net patient service revenue, 3 million of our positive operating revenue. Year to date, it's almost 30 million. Uh, this month, the big number here is the Medi-Cal waiver at 13.8 million, uh, and also year-to-date. I mean, we're 46 million better than budget. So this is like a real key driver to why we're doing so much better this year than budget. And right off the top, the ARPA funds, um, American Rescue something act, I'm forgetting it, uh, it, we didn't know about this when we budgeted, so we had no way to guess what we would receive, but we've actually gotten $19 million total. So almost half of the variance is that one-time funding source that will go away, right? And the rest of it is GPP. So we're getting the FMAP 6.2% increase, and then uh, CMS um, allowed for the dish allocation to be greater, which then helped all the public hospitals. So um, that again, it, we don't know if that allocation will continue. So really great news for the organization to see that uh, to see that extra funding come in. Only other item this month is the uh, settlement of the SNF supplemental. We. Um, the final FY17 audit was complete. And so we ended up having to have to pay 1.4 million. And the only other item here worthy is again, our retail pharmacy. It's just every month, it's just, you know, having a, a great positive variance and it's on these high margin drugs. So that's been going on since about March of last year. Here's the operating expenses. We're over budget for the month, 12.2%, and we're over budget for the year, 5.3%. So January was not a particularly good month. And you can see what's driving that is the labor cost, which is my next slide. Other than that, there's really just two areas that are you know, materially over uh, budget, purchase services, uh, and that is overdue to my accrual for contingency fees for the best project. It's, that's the project where we're partnering with Huron. Uh, again, we will recognize benefit to offset that or more than offset it. So um, although this is just an estimate for, for me to put in here now, because some of the improvements are flowing through our financial statements, um, we will uh, ultimately validate all of that. Also in this area, particularly if we look here today, in addition to the contingency fee, you can see our um, clinical services are running quite a bit higher. Those are things for, uh, for like dialysis, uh, Quest Lab sorts of things. And materials and supplies, that one is really COVID related. We, we did not budget enough money for PP&E and that's the biggest driver in the month and the year. 
Um, although we also have higher pharmaceuticals, which is not a bad thing because it's going in the retail pharmacy and we're getting a profit on those drugs. So uh, really most of it is, is, is a, a budget miss in, rega in regards to COVID related costs. The labor slide, here's where, you know, we've got the biggest variance. And in the current month, we're, uh, if I combine registry and labor, we are over 5.3 million. Notice that our paid FTEs are actually favorable. So what that's telling you is, yes, we have lower volumes. We would expect to have fewer FTEs because we would flex down to lower volumes, but our rate that we are paying is either overtime and mostly registry is very, very high. And I have a slide uh, that I can show you more about that in just a minute. Year to date, we are actually over 15.1 million combined. And again, under budget for the FTE. So it is a rate variance. Also in the month, our physician wages are higher. Um, some of this is a reclass between salary and contract because our contract is actually um, pretty close to budget, but we're doing we're handling more of our call internally and we did increase our rates. So that's what's driving that variance there. And we see some offset in benefits. Uh, we have, because we have fewer employed people getting benefits. However, in the month of January, it's the start of a new year and we didn't quite budget enough FICA because the FICA, it works off of a calendar year. So you pay more in the beginning of the year and then it tapers off. Uh, and that's a similar explanation for retirement here. We've been, uh, we're over almost all of the amount we're over has to do with the variance in January. And that is the same phenomenon that, you know, in January we reset and people increase their um, contributions and we um, match. So here's the slide I was talking about. We did update the slide to the right from the last time you saw it. This is now all other instead of a combined for the company. So I think this is a better reflection of what we want to look at. So um, back in 18, 19, and even into 20, our internal nurses um, were making more than registry. So the registry cost was cheaper. That flip-flop and you can see how the nursing costs have just skyrocketed. So now they are substantially more expensive than our internal employees. And then if you look at everyone else, um, you can see that the registry is still less than the of our own staff. Any questions before I move on? Well, does that have uh, something to do with the fact that we're paying travel and stay expenses for these, you know, nurses through out-of-town agencies? Yes, but that's been included all along, right? So we do include all of the travel in here. Maybe we're using more of them now. We are. The uh, This is on a per FTE, so it's okay. costing us much, much more, and that's why our registry is so far over budget. Yeah, Trustee Fox, this is Mark. The, the travel agencies now have a tremendous amount of leverage, especially during the pandemics. And, and the cost of hiring travelers is much, much higher than it used to be. And I think that's reflected here. 
Yes. Uh, during our joint meeting, it was stated that there'd be some discussion in the coming week amongst the executive leadership team about how to recruit. Are we gonna get a report on that? Um, yeah, I think I may have said that, Trustee Esteen. We'll be meeting in the next, by we, I mean, um, the CAOs and um, Roloft and our CNO to talk about um, coming out of this pandemic, how we can get our arms around getting us, getting our expense structure back to budget. And that would include things like labor, registry, overtime, um, and any other expenses that have escalated during the pandemic. So yeah, if you would, if the board would like a report, I, we could, Get that because the goal here is to have you know a written actionable plan to get us back in line. I'd love to hear the plan. Okay, very good. All right, thank you. And then this is the trending where we are looking at adjusted patient days. So this is not discharges. This is just adjusted patient days, uh, and it's a it's a kind of a global factor. And you can see, you know, when COVID started, how our volumes dropped off and they picked up a little bit, but they're not as low as they were in this period. Uh, you can also see that we've always historically budgeted more FTE than we actually needed. And you can see the impact of the 12 week COVID leave, the benefit that was given to folks right after the pandemic started and how all of a sudden our paid FTEs jumped quite a bit. And then you can see we kind of leveled out here, but we didn't go back down to where we were before. And I think that that goes to what Mark is saying. Um, you can also notice that we budgeted a lot more FTE in the winter months, and normally our volumes would go up in the winter month, but we did not um, use those FTE because our volumes did not jump up. The concern I have is we did do a step up here, so we, we need to you know, take a look at this and make sure that we right-size our staff. This is the balance sheet um, indicators. Just a couple comments here. Our days in AR came back down another day, which is great. Um, our uh, over 60 in accounts payable came down, and that's a lot of, uh, of work by legal and Ahmad and his team renegotiating some agreements with attorneys and, and we've got those invoices paid now, but they were, we did have quite a few sitting out there, but we did um, get some better rates. So kudos to him. Our net position continues to improve. And again, that's because of our net income. And on the net negative balance, we are compliant with the terms of our line of credit and we are actually quite low. This is the um, AR days graph. Um, wanted to point out something, and that is uh, going back to Alameda Alliance. I told you we did bring in 2.5 million of revenue and that they retro-processed claims. But when they reprocess the claims, um, they automatically hit and they created this huge credit balance in our AR system. It was in excess of $25 million. And so what happened is you saw our AR days go, um, uh, go up as we corrected the problem. So it was worth about three days of AR. 
So we, we got that finished on February 24th. This graph doesn't go to February 24th. It was just as of the date that I posted what we had available. But I wanted to bring that to everyone's attention because that's going the opposite way that we wanted it to want it to go. Professional fees have been going uh, kind of clipping up. Uh, they're still at 33.9, which is not bad. The collection month for January was not great for either HB or PB. So here's the actual collections. Uh, you can see that at 62, that's not a, a, a really great month. Um, so again, though, what's important to look at is we're 18.1% better than we were last year. And that may not seem huge, 18.1%, but it actually is pretty substantial. It's like um, $35 million. So that's a lot of, that is one of the reasons why our NNB has gone down, that and the additional funding we've received. And it is one of the best two or three or four months we've ever had. Oops, I'm sorry. Um, if, yeah, a lot of it is because of the behavioral health here. This is the epic postings, right? So the 53 uh, is not our best month. What's really picked it up was the behavioral health. So um, just to remind everybody, the big number here in September was the retro increase we got last year. These amounts here, the first 5.8 was on last year's claims, additional money that we got. And um, January is actually the first invoice we've been, that we've gotten that actually finalized last year and the first couple months of this year. So now we should start to see funding come in every month as we're caught up. Yay, yes. <laughs> Kim, what's the projection for the behavioral health uh, on, a, on a monthly? Well, the way the behavioral health works, the, over 90% of the payer mix are county responsibility. So we have a maximum contract amount uh, and off the top of my head, I think, I can't remember what it, what it was. Uh, let's say it was maybe, I think it might be like 58 million. Um, anyway, I can go, come back to the group. I just don't remember off the top of my head. Um, it went up substantially for the last two years I've been here. Um, we, we hadn't done a new contract with them since 2014 when I got here. And so we did a big settlement from 2014 to 2018. So there's a lot of settlement money in our financials. And then um, we got an increase the first year, and then we got a really big increase last year. This year, I don't think we're going to get that big of an increase because we've kind of caught up now. But um, I think what's really going to help us with behavioral health is we're doing a much better job at managing the process and avoiding denials. And that's where we're going to really pick up. And of course, if they, if this county can bill it to the state, we, they can pay us. If they can't bill it to the state, they can't pay us. So um, I'm expecting that that um, uh, we'll, I'll be able to have some great news once, once I can get the stats out of the county system because they're not in our system. So um, hopefully, I'll have more on that within the next month. Just for clarity, when we talk about behavioral health, are we talking about John George and our clinic behavioral health? Are we talking about an either or? 
Well, thank you for that, Trustee Esteem. Yeah, so um, John George uh, collect cash is not in Epic. We wanna put it in Epic. We wanna post it so we can see which accounts got paid, which ones got denied, and we can trend things and root cause things. But right now, at least when we went live with Epic, we made the decision not to build out the Epic module. So we don't post any of the payments in Epic. I don't have any of the statistics in Epic. I don't have any of the denials information in Epic. That is all gonna change. There's a team of people that are making huge headway and it won't be long before this behavioral health will just be part of Epic. So to answer your question, that is John George um, behavioral health money from the, which over 90% of the payers is the county. Kim, when do you expect that to be rolled into Epic, the, the, the John George, by end of calendar? Um, by December, that I think is a good, a good estimate. Um, there's a work project plan. In fact, we reviewed it today. Um, right now, what they're doing is they're building out the, the care coordination modules so that we can um, appeal any denials. We can do concurrent reviews. So if there's a problem, we can address it right away. That's what they're focusing on right now. Um, they're focusing on getting these bills out, which is why you're seeing all this money coming in. Um, and they're caught up. So we should now start to see a payment every month, so, you know, which is nice to see for now. And then once it's in Epic, it will end up being blended in Epic. Well, um, that's, that's, big, that's, that's big for us, right? To be able to manage that data. That it's sort of black boxy right now, right? <laughs> Yeah, it is exactly. It's a we have no idea. We we don't have access to the county system to see what they see. We don't see what the EOBs say back from the state. So we're like completely disconnected. Uh, but that will all change. And the county is our partner in this. They've been helping us. Um, we've got a new team doing the doing the work. IT folks are involved. There's a there's a lot of people, there's a lot of emphasis. And I think this was the biggest opportunity. AHS, AHS had to improve their profitability um, when I started. So this is the NNB forecast. Um, this hasn't really changed much since last time. I Last time I extended it out to the end of the next fiscal year. It looks like we'll be fine in regard to the NNB. Um, this assumes, though, that, you know, we're going to be able to um, develop a budget that has profitability, um, has at least cash flow in at least the 3% EBITDA range. So um, as we once we get the budget done, I will replace this line with um, whatever our budget is. Uh, we are behind in our capital spending. We've only spent $13.5 million. We had planned to spend 32.4. I did leave that in here. So that might not actually happen, which means we come in a little less. Is the 32.4 year to date or is that the budget for the whole year? Whole year. Okay. Yeah, and it equals pretty close to the 3% EBITDA margin that I mentioned. So this next uh, item was a, I did this actually originally at the request of the county because, you know. Kim, Kim if I can ask a question, I, oh, I apologize. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, just go back to the capital budget. I mean, I, obviously we're not on track, but is there anything 
out there in terms of capital capex that you're expecting that might bring it in to closer to 32? Uh, so I, we've been, so a lot of folks asked for a lot of things and they're in different, we've changed our process. So there may be some confusion with that, but we're really trying to allow the leaders to, to engage and be accountable and to, you know, to manage their projects. And I don't know, I mean, I know Mark Kratzky's on the line. He may have some, some comments yeah. as well. Yeah, Splen, there isn't any one thing that's going to take it from 13 to 32. It's multiple, multiple, um, I would say um, $50,000 to $200,000 pieces of capital that are budgeted this year. So, um, you know, it, it happens every year where not all of it gets purchased. And if they want it the next year, it would have to be resubmitted. And my guess is that we're going to have some of that going on this year as well. Yeah, I, I just maybe, I mean, I, I just see that as a way to increase productivity and at least at some, for a certain extent, especially getting rid of about maybe end of life equipment. I mean, that, that's, that's where I'm trying to get to is, yeah. you know, it may be, maybe there's a, <clears throat> I know you guys are spending a lot of time on many different things, but if there is a, um, in, in, in other words, an aging list that you guys are tracking, oh God, got some end of life equipment here. Maybe we should take yeah. a, a leading, a, a hand, a guiding hand and, and, and expedite that yeah. request. That, that's all. That's all I'm trying to inquire yeah. into. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And we have done that on a lot of our capital purchases um, from a year ago and, and, and through to this year so far. But yeah, that's, that's what we try to do. We also have, uh, I don't know, a couple million set aside for emergency capital, which we've been utilizing. And I think, Kim, the emergency capital is part of that 13.5, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, it it is interesting that you know we've got these plan projects that are approved that aren't moving forward, and then there's a lot of uh, emergency that's coming through that we're funding, uh, which is good that we have the funding to to do it. But uh, I think I think it's I think it's just a learning and and you know with our leaders that that they have they've gotten approval they can move it forward. I think it's just yeah. thank we're, you. We're slowly getting there. <laughs> Uh, so this is the table that the county asked me for, and um, I actually like it because these supplemental funding, these these funds are huge, and you know depending upon the timing of them could make us go over our line of credit limit. We were at at the point where we thought that could happen last June, and we reported it, and ultimately the rate range money came in, and we didn't need to give notice on the line of credit, uh, which we had done the year before. So these, um, these payments can, uh, the timing of them can really uh, impact our cash flow. And just to point out, if you look at how our line of credit goes up here, you can see the reason why it's going up is these supplemental, oops, went the wrong way. These supplement, there's no supplemental funding coming in those months. So there's nothing from July and these net to zero. So there's really nothing till, till December. So you can, you can, that's why we're going up 
so much in our line of credit. So it's really important to, to watch these. Um, and we don't always know exactly when we're going to get this money. A lot of these programs changed from a fiscal year to a calendar year. And so everything is kind of, you know, up in the air. But we do our best and we update this, you know, every month. Um, this HPAC uh, amendment, I, I uh, struggle with quite a bit because the county gives us this money and we know we can't keep it. So it's kind of like artificial. We get the money. It improves our situation on the line of credit. And then we always have to pay it back in the October timeframe after the fiscal year ends. So it does help us when they drop our line of credit limit on June 30, but we turn around and go right back up again. So talk to them about that. And they said by law, they have to transfer the money to us. So that's that's their, their um, response uh, to me. Um, but we do do a lot of work to create this HPAC amendment and it's really all for nothing if we can't keep the funds. So it's one of those inefficiencies that are built into our system. So that is my finance report. Any questions? All right, thank you very much. Nice thank to have you. a very favorable report. Yes, uh, it is. Now we move on to item B2, uh, Chief Operating Officer Report. This month we're going to focus on something that we hear a lot about every day in the media, which is supply chain. So I've been looking forward to that. And, and uh, Mark, we have 30 minutes uh, allocated for the report. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Trustee Fox. And tonight we are featuring the supply chain. And you know, it's been a challenge during the pandemic to make sure that our organization is supplied with the stocks it needs to, to carry on the work we do. I'm pleased to introduce Greg Mitchell, our Director of Materials Management and Supply Chain. Um, Greg will give you an overview kind of of what his department does. Um, and also partnered with him is Garrett Bensler, um, our Huron partner who, um, can also bring you up to date on the work that's being done um, within our supply chain to gain some economy of scale and decrease um, our expenses. So Greg, I will turn it over to you to, to get it underway. You can share your screen if you've got your presentation. Yeah, so Garrett, I think is gonna be um, sharing the screen and doing okay. the driving. He graciously offered to do that. Well, good evening, trustees. My name is Craig Mitchell, as Mark mentioned, and I am the System Director of Supply Chain Management for the Alameda Health System. Um, as Mark mentioned, I am joined this evening with Garrett Bensler. Garrett is a healthcare director with Huron Consulting. And as you know, AHS is engaged uh, with Huron to help identify and implement operational and financial efficiencies within the system. And this engagement, as you know, is called the BEST Initiative. Garrett and I serve as co-engagement leads for the supply chain portion of the BEST initiative, and I will be, uh, and we will be co-presenting this evening. Next slide. So quickly, I'm gonna go over some definitions and hopefully I don't insult anyone's intelligence because they're gonna be pretty basic definitions. We'll talk a little bit about um, the global supply chain and some disruptions talk a little bit about the state of the union, if you will, uh, for the supply chain department. And then Garrett will do um, uh, an overview of the, the best initiative and how we're doing so far. 
So I'm going to talk quickly about what supply chain is. And by the way, these definitions are all my own. I didn't steal them from anyone. So um, you may want to argue a point with me on, on uh, the definition. But um, as Trustee Fox mentioned, um, there's a lot of discussion that's been going on in the media about supply chain. So I'll just characterize it this way. It's the activities of developing a plan and implementing processes to provide goods and services, primarily goods, to customers. Generally, they are focused on timeliness, just-in-time inventories, and efficiency. They achieve this through near-perfect forecasting and a specific production schedule. So the question is, what is healthcare supply chain? How is it different? And for the most part, it isn't much different. However, while efficiency is important, the number one focus within healthcare uh, supply chain is responsiveness. Absent a production schedule, healthcare supply chain focuses on never running out of things. And we don't always do well at that, but we try our hardest. This is not to say that efficiency does not matter, but in the balance between efficiency and responsiveness, healthcare supply chains tend to favor responsiveness. Um, a, a word, a catchphrase that's been heard quite often is PPE. I think this one's pretty basic. It's personal protective equipment. These are the items caregivers wear to protect themselves from acquiring infectious diseases. So I'm gonna briefly mention what a stock item is versus a non-stock item. Stock items are products that are maintained within a central inventory system and generally distributed from a central location. Non-stock items are generally purchased directly by the department that is utilizing them as opposed to, uh, to carried in a centralized inventory. Quickly, a blanket PO is a purchase order to cover the ongoing costs, usually for services, to facilitate payment and reduce the amount of transactional non-value work added um, primarily um, to, um, to take care of contractual obligations. Standard POs are purchase orders intended um, to request items when they are needed. The POs generally have a specific quantity and have a specific value attached to them, and they are for a specific request only to be used once. Any questions on that? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, global supply chain disruptions and the impact on healthcare supply chains. Sort of general background information, over the course of the last two years, we have experienced significantly more backorder issues than in previous years, uh, you know, going back to 2019 and before that. As is reported in the news, global supply chains are currently slow and fragmented. Many of the challenges we face are logistical, so it's important to know where our stuff comes from, right? The closer we are to the point of manufacture, the less concerns there are about logistics. So what I focus on primarily is gonna be medical equipment. That's gonna be stuff that generally has a plug associated with it, right? You, you plug it into an electrical outlet and medical commodities. Medical equipment production is dominated by the US, Germany, the Netherlands, and Ireland. The big producers actually are California, Massachusetts, and Minnesota um, within the United States, at least domestically. So there actually is greater domestic production in these areas versus medical commodities. But as we know from the pandemic, um, sometimes we don't have the, uh, the ability to produce everything that's needed. Um, for medical communities, uh, medical commodities, excuse me, production is dominated by the US, China, Thailand, Vietnam, and Malaysia. So, um, so in terms of shortages, which has been kind of the ongoing concern over the course of the last couple of years, 
One year ago, it was really all about PPE. That was what we were focused on. That's what we were having issues with and shortages. Lately, we've been struggling more to source things like syringes, crutches, suction canisters, skin preps, and just tons of random supplies. Um, there is enough of this really to cause the house to scramble from time to time. And, and it, has, uh, it has taken a toll on caregivers. Um, we've had a lot of outages lately. Um, supply chain personnel are spending a lot of time dealing with these as are people in the nursing units. We're facing longer lean time, uh, lead times to get items. Um, manufacturers are challenged to scale their production to the needs. And as I previously mentioned, shipping log and logistics are more time consuming, especially for offshore products, but even for domestic products. It just takes us a lot longer to get stuff. And of course, the new emerging, emerging issue, shifting away from pandemic challenges are other geopolitical challenges. And I think we know, uh, I think everybody knows kind of what I'm talking about there. So the impact of this, uh, this has resulted in higher demand for products and higher prices, um, higher demand for raw materials that go into the production of these items, uh, many more back orders and delays, um, and, and I will say back orders that used to take two or three days are now taking two or three weeks to resolve. So, um, so it's, it's, it really has had a significant impact on the organization. From an um, intervention perspective, um, you know, we've done a lot of creative sourcing over the last course of the last year. So our purchasing department in the past was pretty dependent on some of our strategic partners to really you know, help source alternative products. And, and we kind of had to take the lead on some of that over the course of the last couple of years, so, or certainly the last year. So um, we've also um, done, and this actually predates my time at AHS, I've been here a little over a year, started doing daily and weekly monitoring of our PPE situation. And I think the next slide kind of shows sort of an example of what that looks like. Um, but um, on a daily basis, we produce a report that looks like this. And for about 150 codes, and for all of the facilities where we have um, inventory, so it'd be Highland, uh, the uh, Fairmont John George campus, San Leandro and Alameda, we produce a report that kind of shows what our on-hand position is, uh, what our utilization has been over the course of the previous week, and then kind of um, from there, um, calculates what our, um, what our kind of days on hand situation should be. Um, we've also been doing very, very focused um, looks at um, N95 masks lately, um, drilling into to them on a very specific um, item level because um, N95 masks are a little bit harder to substitute than other products um, because they have to be fit tested to the uh, person who's utilizing them. So that's a little bit about, um, you know, what's going on in the global supply chain and how it's impacting us. Are there any questions on that? Um, do we ever um, cooperate with other organizations if, if, that we're, if, you know, may put out the word if we're out of something or going to be out of something that somebody else may have some extra 
that we can borrow or, or buy from them? It happens, um, probably not as frequently as it could, in part, be, uh, I'll say in part because of me being kind of relatively new to the organization and the area, my network isn't as um, developed as it should be. But the folks in purchasing certainly uh, know people at other hospitals. And so there have been occasions where we have reached out to other facilities um, and occasionally they're able to help us out with sourcing on things, so. Um, and Greg, I assume we're in one or more group purchasing organizations? We are, and I, actually I will talk about that here in a moment. Okay. Yes, we are a member of uh, Vizient, it's the largest group pur purchasing organization. And I'm just wondering, which maybe you can cover in your remarks, is just how, when, when you've got a bunch of hospitals all clamoring for something, how does the GPO decide where, they, where it goes? You know, the GPO doesn't have a ton of say in that, but our prime distributor does. So um, things wind up going on allocation. Uh, they basically, um, our, our primary vendor being Medline, if we have items that are in their distribution channel, they will do allocations to manage the flow of those products out to various entities. And those allocations are generally based on what your typical usage has been in the past. So if they have 80% of the product that they normally have, they're all gonna give, they're gonna give every facility they work with 80% of what their normal usage is. And they, they cap it at that. So whereas, Whereas we may get into situations from time to time where we're using 120% of what we typically use in a month, it's not a problem. But during um, times like this, um, we get allocated and we get capped on that. So that has been a contributing factor to some of the issues we've had. All right, let's talk a little bit about the state of the department, unless there are any other questions. Yeah, I've had my hand raised. If I can oh, ask sorry. a question, oh, no, yeah, no, not okay. you. It's no, our our chair I didn't notice me. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah. If so, if I'm not noticing you, please, uh, please scream because I'm right. not always seeing it on my on my screen. All right, hey Greg, thank you very much. I'm glad mm -hmm. I'm glad you were invited to come because I, I, this 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 stuff is interesting to me. Um, I'm going to follow up on Alan's question though about creating. I mean, I come from a place that to, to a certain extent. You know, public health is a, a backbone infrastructure, you know, just maybe, you know, in some respects like water, or electricity, and, and there's always in those services, they always build in redundancies, you know, in case you have to your mutual aid, I guess what you may be a better way to call like in the fire world, right, or in the police world. Um, I'm just curious in the future, if, if, or if other places have that sort of mutual aid uh, redundancy where they can call on or maybe do we just rely upon the distributors to, uh, in essence, to reallocate when a need happens and is needed in one place and can get it from another place? I mean, this is not a question. It's just more of curious. I'd love to hear more if that is something that exists and if it's something we should be looking at in the future. You know, it, it, it kind of happens in an informal way, you know, and I kind of referenced how purchasing occasionally will contact other purchasing departments or people that they know in other facilities um, to, um, to source things. Unfortunately, right now, um, you know, I've made phone calls, you know, to places even outside of California. And most of the things that we're seeing um, 
shortages on everybody else's as well. Um, but it's a good point. And I do think that, um, and we'll talk about this here in a, in a second, but I do think that um, there's going to be a, a cultural change in, in kind of supply chain in healthcare, uh, not just at AHS, but, but throughout the industry. Um, and, and this mutual aid uh, concept is likely something that may emerge from that. So the GPO may take a larger uh, stake in those kinds of things going forward. But um, it's something we're going to have to give a lot of thoughts to. Yeah, the, I mean, that the, yeah, I mean, the old production adage of just in time is where we want to be like, took a big hit in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. It probably will continue to take a hit yeah. in the next couple of years. Yeah. And just in time has always been a little bit of a challenge in healthcare because, as I mentioned earlier, the production scheduling and so forth. But um, so, yeah, it's it's taken a hit for sure. Absolutely. It's going to it's 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 now just in case. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right. Great questions. Any other questions? All right. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the department. Before I talk about cultural change and, and um, um, kind of reference that a little bit earlier, I just want to give you a, a couple of uh, facts that uh, related to some activity, um, just to give you sort of an idea of what's going on. So in 2021, we generated sort of non-blanket POs in the amount of roughly $73 million. Um, and um, a good percentage of that went towards PPE. And I will say that um, our inventory increased significantly over that period of time. And a lot of it is because of PPE purchases. Um, and, and I can go into a lot of detail about that, but it, it might bore you to death. So I, I don't think we'll go there. But if you have any questions, I can, I can elaborate on that. So as I'd mentioned earlier though, I think when we emerge out of this geo-health, geopolitical crisis we're in, we're gonna have a new normal for supply chain. Um, and I don't mean just at AHS, I mean kind of globally, especially in the healthcare sector. So supply chain leaders like myself will need to manage the new cultural experience that will undoubtedly emerge. And, and I'm not sure exactly what that's gonna look like, frankly, but, but I have an idea of some of the things that we're gonna be dealing with going forward. Um, so I think, I think that there's gonna be a demand um, and, and I think some of the, the nursing leaders on this call will agree with this, that there's gonna be a stronger culture of service uh, going forward, a stronger expectation that we provide a higher degree of service that we have in, in, the, in the past. And we're really starting to see this already with increasing ask to extend services, to include more stocking points, um, help with requisi requisitioning specialty items and other supply related stuff that has traditionally, rightly or wrongly been handled by end user departments as opposed to supply chain. And we've already seen some of this and we've already done some of, some of these changes, right? I mentioned earlier, we did a lot of creative sourcing um, in the last couple of years where we became a little less re reliant on um, our GPO or our prime distributor and we were going out there and kind of taking some activities on by ourselves to, to help um, achieve some, go some goals. So, um, so I wanna talk a little bit about how this is, has 
impacted kind of the relationship with, with our frontline staff. Um, nursing has been incredibly appreciative, patient and understanding with all the issues that have been going on and they have been facing the brunt of the challenge. I mean, it's been a, it's been a problem for supply chain but it's really been a problem for nursing. So as a result, I think it's becoming clear that the needs, uh, their needs are gonna change and what we're gonna need to do going forward is gonna need to change. So, um, so we're gonna be asked to do more than we have in the past. And, and these asks are reasonable and understandable given what we've been through in the last couple of years. Um, but um, like any change, this will come with uh, modifications to our current processes and technologies. Um, and um, we're not yet sure, as I mentioned earlier, how that's gonna look, but we're, we're thinking about this right now because it's, it's starting to happen. Um, but I will say that we are looking forward to, to working with the clinical stakeholders to, to reinvent the supply chain department to be um, a little bit more um, accommodating to the needs of the, the clinical enterprise. Um, just a little bit on, on that in terms of customer service and service recovery, you know, there is ample research out there to suggest that nursing satisfaction Positive, positively correlates to favorable clinical outcomes. And I believe that supply chain has a pretty big impact on nursing satisfaction. Uh, and I think that this has been especially the case over the last couple of years. So as part of the culture and cha cultural change that I envision for the future, the supply chain department will be placing a lot of focus on customer service and service recovery. And I would categorize the supply chain staff here at AHS as heavily inclined to provide top-notch services to their customers. So really what we're talking about is training and instilling certain service techniques that can be, uh, it can be kind of daunting to do that, but, but I believe we've got the team to, to do it and to pull it off. Um, so this aligns uh, very quick, very closely with our journey towards more of a strategic orientation, right? So no longer is supply chain the group that kind of kicks boxes around and moves them from the basement to upstairs and, and generates purchase orders. And that's a, that's a simplification and maybe not a fair one, but definitely there's gonna be a greater focus on analytic um, analysis and benchmarking to assure optimal pricing. Some of that's already going on. I think we're gonna be, be facing a lot more of that, focusing a lot more on that. Um, perhaps some predictive modeling to trend product utilization and, and, and hopefully get a little bit in front of some of the back order issues that we have. Uh, just an aside, most of these back orders, we don't have too much advance notice of. We order something, we, um, we probably don't have a sufficient lead time with our distributor and then and later that day or the next day, we find out that they're out of the product. So, um, so, Additionally, I think that at some point in time, um, we will have a, uh, a five-year strategic plan for the organization. And my intention is to develop a strategic plan for supply chain that will support that um, overall plan. Um, I did wanna showcase a little bit about our GPO. So for those who are unaware, GPO is a group purchasing organization they basically consolidate, they, they have a large membership of hospitals and, and organizations join these consortiums 
And based on the size of the consortium, um, they negotiate contracts with various suppliers, which is great because I don't want to be negotiating for the purchase of sterile four by fours. I'm glad someone else is doing that. Um, so um, so we, we access uh, many of their contracts and they got contracts with all kinds of su suppliers, you know, Covidian, Medtronic, you name it. Um, our, our GPO probably has a contract with them. So we're accessing their contracts. Those contracts are tiered. So based on our volume or our market share, we get a different price than, um, you know, well, it's just based on, on what we're doing um, in terms of our purchases, it affects our price. So um, last year, Vizient was able to, through programs that they have where they, sh they share back a portion of the fees they collect from suppliers, they have these programs to, um, to help you standardize your products and there's sort of some goodies associated with it in the terms of a, a cash reward. Um, they, they've, they've been working with us to achieve um, enrollments where we're buying items, but we're not utilizing a, a, a GPO agreement. Um, they even have a, a penalty uh, program for suppliers that are having a difficult time um, supplying to your needs. So with all those, those things um, added up, um, they've uh, delivered about an additional 1.6 million through these programs to our organization. So, you know, um, a nice sum really. Um, and of course, um, you know, they're one of our strategic partners, if you will. Um, the other one is Medline Industries who is our um, prime distributor. Um, we've worked with them a lot to, um, to optimize the amount of things that are coming through the, the, the channel. Um, as a general proposition, even with all the stockouts, if something is in your local distri dis distribution channel, you're gonna probably have uh, a greater chance of getting that item when you order it. Um, so um, we've been optimizing that channel as best as we can. And they've, they've also, they have helped us source uh, when there have been stockouts. And then another kind of key strategic partner that we have, although it's kind of a short-term partner is Huron Consulting and Garrett will be speaking here in a moment. But I do wanna talk briefly about technologies. Um, we have, we have, you know, tech, I, I like to say technologies are great if they're, if they're used in an optimized fashion. And actually, um, AHS, I think, is ahead of some of the previous places that I've worked in terms of the technologies that they've deployed. But I will say that they're not optimized um, as well as they could be. Um, we have handheld technologies to do for our supply chain folks to requisition supplies on the units. Um, we use them for receiving, delivering, all kinds of things. And generally those are working pretty well, but right now uh, we have an unfilled position that is basically the technology person for the supply chain department. And so we haven't really been able to um, adequately maintain those devices for the last several months. Fortunately, that hasn't presented a big problem because not much has changed in terms of the needs of those devices. There are other problems associated with that, that open position and I'll get into that in a minute. We have supply station dispensing technologies, which I'll be honest with you, I'm struggling with right now as to whether they make sense here. But, but 
Uh, as a general proposition, they're a good way for you to, to manage supplies on a unit if they're set up and optimized. Um, we have a relatively robust ERP system. Um, in terms of the materials management functionality on it, we have a lot of challenges with that. And that is primarily driven by uh, an open position in the department that's been open for a period of time. Um, I'm, so I'm hoping once we get that issue resolved, um, we will be kind of functioning a little bit better there. Okay, Greg, so, I'm just gonna jump in with a time check. We got about five, mi five minutes uh, Oh my, I've, I've, I've gotten long-winded. Um, I'm gonna uh, bypass on the additional resourcing opportunities because I, I think I've really kind of hit on some of those. Um, but the one thing I do want to mention is that um, we do have a very engaged staff here at AHS. Um, so we've got a lot of opportunities and challenges, but, um, but I will say this in all sincerity, um, this is the best staff I've had the pleasure of working with out of any of the hospitals I've been at. So with that, and I'm sorry, Garrett, it looks like I didn't give you much time, um, but I want to transition to uh, to our partner here on consulting, who will talk a little bit about the BEST initiative and how that's going at this point. Thank you, Greg. And I'll be about as quick as I can, but feel free to cut me off if I'm, if I'm running over. Um, so just a quick reminder, you know, supply chain fits in with several other teams on the BEST initiative, but today we're going to focus in on the, the supply chain activities. So just a brief overview of really the goals of our team. Really what we're trying to do is identify and implement cost savings initiatives in supply and service categories. We're certainly investigating processes and some operational things as well, but right now our main focus is sustainability from a financial perspective. And to do that really, you know, we're working on decreasing service and supply pricing, optimizing utilization of services and supplies, standardizing methodology for cost reduction across the system, and then hopefully creating an infrastructure for sustained savings and really to continuously uh, identify and implement benefit in the future. Um, so, you know, how we do that, we really collect a lot of data and we analyze that. Um, Huron's taken on a lot of that legwork. We do a lot of benchmarking activities and observing and processes. And then we, we really kind of form a, a committee and we work to prioritize initiatives, engage operational stakeholders, form initiative teams, and then we really execute on initiative strategies. So in a bit, I'll share some of the initiatives that we are actively working on, but really just wanted to mention that throughout all of this, some of our guiding principles, we're really focused on fiscal responsibility. And I will say the team's done a great job of being open-minded with regard to strategies and, and really um, kind of challenging the way that they um, are, are kind of going about their daily lives and how it might be impacting costs related to supply chain. Um, but also consistent coordination with AHS leaders uh, and finally, communication with staff early and often. So regarding our financial targets, our goal is to save the organization between three and $4.7 million annually in recurring benefit. So, you know, really we're trying to reduce clinical supplies and purchase services spend um, by like three to almost $5 million on an annual basis. Um, that's recurring savings. These are with partners that you're purchasing supplies and services from, you know, every, every day, every month, every year, um, and expect to continue to do so. So wanted to touch on some of the initiatives included within this. I'm sure some folks are curious about the types of things we're going after. So um, the first set is really our clinical supplies initiative. So these are things like implants, some of the commodities Greg referenced earlier, and some of the top opportunities that you can see on the screen are in spinal implants, trauma products, coronary products, uh, craniomaxillofacial plating and supplies, and several others. We've had some quick wins, so we've already implemented some savings, 
Um, but there are some major opportunities that are near implementation, uh, either moving to contracting or already in the contracting phase, which we're really excited about. Um, and so we're about $700,000 in savings. That's just near the finish line on the clinical supply side. And then on purchase services, there's, again, many different areas that we're going after. The unique thing about purchase services is it's not really a centralized function. Um, every department in a hospital takes advantage of different purchase services. So we have to do a lot of engagement with end users, with different departments. Greg's been instrumental in that. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that really all of the folks we've worked with across all these departments, the clinicians, we work very closely with surgeons to gain their buy-in on strategy. They've all been very supportive, open-minded, and willing to explore creative solutions across all of our initiatives, which really is um, helping us uh, exceed our expectations on several of these initiatives, and it has been an absolute blessing. Um, some of the top purpose services initiatives you can see here include EVS supplies, linen loss and utilization, dialysis services, um, you know, some really high cost categories that impact the organization that we're working to optimize in some way. So where all that has gotten us to this point is if you focus on the far right, we've just exceeded the mid-target and launched benefit. Those are all those approved initiatives that we just talked about. We've implemented just over $150,000 in annual savings. So we certainly expect that to increase. As mentioned, we've got a lot of benefit near implementation. We're really excited about that. Um, but we're hoping to actually well exceed that mid-target and implemented benefit, which is what truly matters. The launch is a target, you know, we want to surpass that and how we actually execute on these initiatives. So just a last slide here, the timeline, kind of where we're at, you can see in this March timeframe, really in the kind of front of, of implementing all of our initiatives, um, we're almost through with launching. We might launch a couple others, some kind of stragglers here, um, but really we're going to shift our focus in the coming months once we continue to execute on these opportunities to transitioning a lot of the responsibilities Huron has been supporting to make sure that Greg and his teams and others throughout the organization um, are positioned well to, in an ongoing fashion, identify and implement similar opportunities in the future um, and really make sure that all this great work that's being performed um, you know, doesn't go away um, when Huron inevitably does. So excited to get into that and been talking with Mark, Greg and others about how to tee that up in the recent months. So I'm excited. I know that was really quick. Uh, try to be respectful of time, but any questions for me on the best initiative? All right. Well, that was uh, really an excellent report uh, for both of you folks. And Greg, it'd be it'd be nice to have you back in about a year and see how you're doing on the culture changes in supply chain department. But thank you very much for preparing a, a really interesting report. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, and that brings us to uh, item uh, C1, which is a discussion about the article that we sent out. And I thought this was an interesting, uh, interesting summary uh, of the uh, single payer bill that was in the legislature a month or so ago. Uh, and even though it, it was uh, pulled before it ever came to a vote, it, it, this is a, a true example of um, healthcare finance at the macro level. And I, I thought it was really illuminating uh, how much is involved in, in the state going up on a uh, single payer system. I believe a single payer system is a desirable goal, but I was really struck by how complicated a process it will be uh, to get to the finish line if, if the state were to go ahead. 
And I thought that especially the second paragraph on page two was really the meat of the issue. It talks about the fact that the bill would provide that CalCare, which would be what the program would be, would be called, would incorporate all the benefits of the Medi-Cal and Medicare programs, among other existing programs. And did a little research, internet research, and found that the federal government provided $55 billion in funding for California's Medi-Cal program back in 2015, which is the largest chunk of federal money that comes to California. And Medicare provided $69 billion of federal funding for California in 2015. So the total of both of those is $124 billion. And under this proposal, the state would have to negotiate waivers to get this funding directly and keep our share coming year after year. Um, I don't know if it would require an act of Congress for the federal government to agree to that, but I see that as being a, a pretty complex process to try to get $124 billion, and which is probably more than that uh, today, flowing back and forth between the federal government and the state uh, to go into single payer. Also, later on, uh, the summary st states that fee-for-service rates would have to be negotiated with providers who could make it simpler for the state by negotiating on a collective basis. But there are about 115,000 physicians in California, total of 900,000 healthcare providers altogether, and obviously not all of them would require individual contracts. But it just looked to me like the contracting process would be a major project in addition to, in addition to uh, the waiver project uh, with the federal government. Um, the bill acknowledges that it, would, it could take until July of 2024 to determine whether implementation is financially feasible. Um, but you know, as I said, I, I think single payer is a, des a desirable end state, but it just seems like uh, there's a lot of complexity to get from here to there. Uh, I'd be interested in the reactions and comments of the uh, committee members and other folks that are in the meeting. Uh, I think that was a great synopsis of the bill AB 1400. I think it is an absolutely desirable option for our state and our country, frankly. And we see universal health care in portions amongst our population. Um, you know, our veterans have health care. Our Medicare and Medi-Cal system is somewhat a universal health care type program. Um, but ultimately to have universal health care would mean that every single member of our, every single person in our state that resides here would have access to health care that if, I think the implementation is the question, if implemented in the ways that make people feel whole, they no longer have to pay insurance premiums and they no longer have out of, out of cost pocket, out of pocket costs for pharmaceuticals or co-pays and things of that nature. And I think what makes universal healthcare hard for people to wrap their minds around is the concept around who's gonna pay. But when we think about um, people who make minimum wage at different employers, sometimes corporate employers, um, that then require treatment among our facilities that are um, you know, publicly funded, we're all paying for that. And if we think about uh, people who have insurance, who pay premiums plus co-pays, plus out-of-pocket costs, 
plus deductibles, then you're paying for that as well. So I think imagining where costs are covered, we all pay a lot already. But you know, the politics being what it is, I think it's it's difficult for people to really imagine how to talk about it all and how to swallow mm-hmm. what could be a huge change to the way we conceptualize healthcare. Although a lot of other developed countries have managed to do it. This is true. Any other comments? Did you think this was a worthwhile article for everybody to look at? All right. Well, uh, I mean, I appreciate you raising it. I mean, I did a little research myself. It failed in 2017 and it failed this year. And I suspect we won't see it again for four or five years. I mean, the, the votes aren't there. Well, you know, what, there have been numerous attempts to o- basically overhaul the entire healthcare system, either on a state or fe- federal level. And none of them have succeeded. And I think it's largely due to both the complexity of the way the healthcare industry is now, uh, because I don't think we have a healthcare system in the country. I think we have an industry, uh, but it's not sewn together in any particularly well-planned out manner. But there's also a lot of stakeholder opposition. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult for our legislators to pull the trigger to really make this happen. I mean, another alternative could be, why don't we just first work on insuring the uninsured uh, before we try to fix the entire system? But uh, long-term, I think it could easily take a decade or more once we've made the decision to go ahead. Could All I right, any more, any more comments? Could I add a comment, Trustee Fox, to your last statement? While it's certainly true that it looks as though universal health care is not something that California will pursue now uh, because the governor is you know, looking at keeping individuals who have their private insurance intact, it's also true at the same time the gover- governor is committed to the remaining uninsured you know, as you may be aware, the governor is expanding health care coverage to undocumented individuals with who are above the age of 50, and that goes into effect in May uh, in a couple of months. And then starting in 2024, individuals who are between the ages of 26 and 49 will have access to state-only Medi-Cal. So, mm-hmm. you know, by 2024, all undocumented individuals who are income eligible will have access to state-only Medi-Cal. So uh, certainly the governor is uh, holding fast to his commitment to creating access to coverage wherever possible. Well, I I think to me, that's the top priority to get everybody covered. All right, if there's no further comment, why don't we move on to item C2? Uh, which is a report by Kim Miranda on the best improvement initiatives. Okay, so this is uh, an update on how we're doing on our best initiatives. Uh, Just to remind everybody, I guess, can everybody see that okay? I didn't go through the whole view here. So this is our legend, everyone can see that? 
Someone say yes. <laughs> yep. Okay. Blue, blue, good. Blue, good. Yes. <laughs> okay. So here's our initiatives. Um, the first one there is the overtime reduction. Um, just as a reminder, uh, we had a baseline of 3.8%. Our budget was 2.7 and our actual was 3.6%. So these are the metrics on this first initiative. We built in savings in our budget of 3.2 million. As of this point in time, we're not seeing um, any of this uh, achieved. We do think by the end of the year, we will you know, pick up a little bit. Um, but that's why this one is red. And, you know, just as a reminder to everybody with all of the folks out on COVID leave and all of the registry, uh, I think that this initiative is not, uh, I think it was not appropriately timed. We, we did the, we considered that the pandemic would pretty much be over. And so I think uh, maybe uh, this initiative was really not a, a very good one for us based on the ongoing pandemic. The next item here is the length of stay. Um, here we uh, have an actual of 5.53, and this does not include John George. Uh, our budget is set at 4.75, so we are not hitting this target either. As I reported today, um, you know, the outbreaks in the skilled nursing are, are not allowing us to discharge patients. We've had several long stay patients in the hospital. So this one uh, has proven to be also a, quite a struggle. For the revenue cycle, we had some specific initiatives that we built into the budget equal to 3.9. We've achieved 3 million of this. We think we'll come in at 4.2, which is actually more than what we put in the budget. Uh, for cash flow, this is measuring our days in AR. Uh, we are not at our target. Our target is 50, and we wanted to be there in April. I mean, 50 is very good. That's top performing. Um, we are yellow because we've made improvement, but we are not at the uh, at our target. Well, and I don't think we will be by April, which was what we had said. This next slide has payer contracting here. I've got a screen because we brought in enough money to cover what we built in the budget. My hope is that uh, you were about 0.7 over right now. My hope is that this is gonna get as green as green can possibly get if we can land Blue Shield and Blue Cross. I signed the Blue Shield professional agreement last week. So I'm so excited that the hospital one will be coming forward here. In the next week, they're working on legal language. We've already uh, determined what the rates would be, agreed on them. Also, just to give you an update on Blue Cross, uh, we did another counter proposal. They came back actually quite favorable. We're just, um, there's an implant issue that it, we're not clear on. So we're, we're finalizing that. And I think we're, we're so close to getting this done. So we will have contracts for every one of our facilities for Blue Shield and Blue Cross. So very excited about that. Um, John Jordan's uh, billing, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, we are green here. We put 8 million uh, additional money in the budget. 
And this was to reduce denials. It wasn't just to get a pay increase or a rate increase from the county. This was really to improve our operations. And we've so far brought in 6.9 million um, of, of money that doesn't relate to this year's contract. I expect that this will get even better uh, once I get the stats out of the county system. So really excited, a lot of people working on this. Um, just uh, it's, it's green, 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 green. <laughs> uh, the dental clinic, uh, we set out to um, try to set up a new FQ for the dental clinic because the dental clinic had such a huge loss. Um, Medi-Cal or Denical uh, doesn't pay for a lot of services within the dental realm. And we were struggling getting eligibility and authorizations. And we've just, it, we just have, have not done very well in the fee-for-service world, um, which is why most organizations you know, do put this, put this service in an FQ because it, it is a much better way to provide the service. Well, when we filed for that um, new FQ, the state got on the phone with us and said, what are you doing? <laughs> and then after discussions, they decided that, you know what, we're going to allow AHS to resume billing at all of the Highland FQ clinics uh, as of March 1. So as of today or yesterday, we started billing as an FQ for all of the um, existing locations on the Highland campus that were FQs back in 2011-12. So this is huge for us. I can't, uh, we're green. I will do, um, I'll update these estimates when I actually have something from the state and I have a rate. Um, but uh, this is just great news uh, for our organization. Uh, HPAC and outside medical costs is the next initiative. Um, here we are green because we are running below budget. Um, so that's good news there. IOP is the next one. I've also updated this information here and this is green. And it is green because we have now well, we have a, a new CAO uh, who's really helped this a lot, move this along. Um, and she's opened up a new clinic. It opened on 228 to be kind of a step down from IOP. And we um, got the final report from the consultant on how to bill for all these services. So we're retroactively billing, which will be done in May for one full year. And we've corrected all the billing going forward as of 12, 17, 21. So once we get a few more months under our belt and more payments, I can look and see if we're getting what that consultant thought we should be getting. So this is all, again, very good news here. Sitter management, again, I think this was not the year to roll this out with all of the registry and, you know, all of the, the, um, the issues with, you know, our Patients not being able to be discharged. So we, uh, uh, this is kind of on hold. I think uh, next year we can pick this back up again. And the labor management efficiency was an overall target that we set. We wanted to use this to compare our efficiency with other organizations. Um, so it's, we used FTE per AOB. 
Um, you can see uh, we budgeted at 5.52. We set a target of 5.46, and we're actually above it at 5.64. And because this is an efficiency, it, it also has length of stay implications here. So we are nowhere where we need to be, but a lot of effort um, is in this initiative. And then the next slide is the Huron um, um, best partnership items. So there's uh, some initiatives that were kicked off here uh, a few months back, three months or so back. Uh, one of them is the revenue cycle. You know, we're looking to for sustainability and to develop standard work and workflows. Um, uh, examples of that are making sure that we've got the plans built so that the access staff can pick the right plan and we can get the right authorizations. Um, that's one, one of these. Reducing denials is another one, getting to root cause, because uh, once we can get our denial rate down, if we can keep it down, that's a, that's a sustainable improvement forever. So lots of great work going on on this initiative. At this point, the measurement looks to be about $4 million. Um, we're still validating these numbers. It's an estimate. Uh, and and it, it, it basically looks at a cash factor at a point in time, and then it measures improvement from that. And it's by payer, by hospital. So um, a lot of work goes into this and we're validating it now, but we can see improvement. So that is just, that's great news. Uh, you just heard about the best supply chain, so I won't, I won't uh, go into that. Best Pharmacy um, is another one here. Uh, our pharmacy it, it has been well operated you know, for quite some time. This is one of the shining areas at AHS. Uh, so there hasn't been a whole lot of findings here, um, but we do have, we have picked up some savings as a result of this engagement. Um, the Best Care Optimization, I think this is one of the, the areas we have the biggest opportunity this involves getting patients in the, in the correct patient status. It, it involves how we manage the patient while they're here, everything. Uh, and so um, Huron is partnering with us there. Uh, really excited to have this, this, uh, this happening. Uh, and it's just now getting kicked off. So we'll be reporting more on that soon. And this last one, the best medical group, uh, this one is just beginning to kick off now, too. Uh, we want to look at physician productivity, work RVUs. We want to look at how we staff in the medical group, how we, you know, register patients, you know, how we schedule patients, you know, kind of the whole thing. So the analysis is going on now, and, and there'll be more on that um, initiative soon. But you know, originally the total opportunity for these were between 39.7 and 55.8 million, and as of right now, we're, in, we're um, we we think we've we've gained 4.2 million. Uh, but again, we are very early in this process. We're just you know, um, what three three months in of reporting. And how long will the whole process be, Kim? Um, the we thought the engagement would be for about 12 months. Um, but depending upon when they start, we could just make decisions to um, extend some of these. Okay. Do you see a lot of these accelerating so that you expect that we'll be reaching our total opportunity within 12 months or so? 
Uh, I think we will. I mean, I like, for instance, going back to revenue cycle, a couple of the things that have been put in place is, you know, uh, Epic uh, uses work, right? Lots and lots of work cues. But there was no prioritization for staff to know where they should go first. Where's the stuff that's going to, you know, do the have the best benefit for the organization? Huron has set that up, and now they're working with IT to automate, right? So that that is like a, a perfect example because if we don't know, we can things can go untimely. We end up writing it off. So that all that needed to be built, and Huron is our partner to do that. Uh, denials on the root cause analysis. They have these incredible analytical tools that can go in and people that know what they're looking for that can go say, ha, here's a trend. Let's go fix this. And so there's a, there's a lot of work going on. And most, um, you know, it's coming out of this, uh, the uh, revenue cycle and of course the best care optimization. But you saw our length of stay, it's very high. So- yeah be able to to make some substantial improvement there it's just it's barely yeah. Christy Fox this is Mark I think we'll be picking up steam significantly on rev cycle and supply chain I think pharmacy is going to peak probably around um, 10 to 12 months um, care optimization will start taking off in probably two to three months so we're probably looking at an engagement of I would say a minimum of 18 months um, as we get these things ramped up. We also have the opportunity to add additional um, areas that we think um, Huron could help us have a significant impact on. So that in my mind, the, the end date um, is open, um, depending on how uh, the gains we continue to get and the issues we continue to find. Mr. Frasky, can you remind the, the trustees about the structure of the Huron Best engagement? Yeah, the governance structure. Um, and and uh, governance, governance and cost structure. Yeah, okay. So the governance structure, um, we have a steering committee um, that has uh, Kim and I and James and I think Mark, Amy, um, and maybe one other along with Huron executives that oversee the entire engagement. Um, there is a benefits committee that Kim mentioned that when we feel we're in a position every month to understand the payment that goes to um, Huron from the work they've done, there's a small group of us that work through that and then eventually make payment to them. So the validation that Kim's talking about is really in that committee. Then there are, there's an initiative, for every initiative, there's um, a work group led by Huron and um, a leader. For example, supply chain, you saw the two leaders tonight, Greg Mitchell and Garrett Bensler. They're the leading. Leader, the leaders are listed on the right for everyone to see right here on this slide. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Tap. Yeah, so yeah, so, and then um, in terms of the cost structure and in terms, I think you're getting at uh, Trustee Bouquet, well, how we pay them. Yes, sir. Yeah, so they're at risk. Um, for all but one of these initiatives right now. Um, it's a 40%, um, they receive 40% up to, I believe, $4 million, and it's 25% after $4 million on these initiatives, with the exception of the care optimization, which we've agreed because it's so resource intense to pay them 
$4 million over the course of, I think it is a year. Um, Kim, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's something like that. And then after that, we moved to 25% um, risk. So because care optimization, um, they're literally bringing, oh gosh, probably 10 to 15 FTEs to bear um, helping us with this initiative. So um, most initiatives will get tucked under most likely the 100% here on at risk. The ones that are really resource intensive on their part, they will have to be negotiated with Huron in terms of how we make payment. So as just a math problem here, we've achieved $4.2 million. We've put out 40% of that, that's roughly $1.7 million. So I, right. just from, from a pure business point of view, we already hit our ROI. If they yeah. left today, we already hit our ROI. That, that is correct. And the ramp up we're talking about, I think we'll see in January that as it relates to RevCycle, we've actually achieved more than the 4 million. I mean, it all has to be validated, but I think every month with maybe the exception of the short months like February, we're going to be doing pretty well um, once these initiatives get going. Thank you very much. Ms. Miranda, may I ask you two questions? Um, can, can we go back to the FQHC discussion? And uh, I have nothing but applause for you on that. What, what, what a big move. Um, we, uh, so for, for, for our other trustees and audience, and Kim, you can correct me on this, we're basically getting probably an extra 100 something bucks per patient visit, you know, maybe probably a little bit more, which is, which is huge. Um, it's been my view that, that this discussions occurred under the two prior administrations as well. So what got it across the finish line? What, what, what got this status across the finish line for us? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I would be playing, you know, like a Monday morning quarterback. I, I don't know what happened in what my predecessors did, but there was a decision just to accept the state's ruling that we were not FQ in all of these sites. And okay. we flip flopped to fee-for-service billing. We accepted it. And, you know, then our losses obviously... Um, really ramped up for the system. Um, but for me, when I came in and once I understood what was going on, I thought, you know what, this, we, we can't just roll over. We have to be FQ. So I just pushed in and put in the applications and said, we're going to, we're going to find, we're going to now go apply and become an FQ. So, and then I don't know the state, um, you know, they, they, we had several conversations and they uh, decided that, you know, Maybe um, Highland, you know, because we've been in FQ since, you know, since the days the county ran the organization. Since time memorial, we've been one forever. <laughs> yeah, so why, I know they came and I know that we need to do a better job of accounting for FQs as a separate entity, not co-mingle with the hospital so that we don't get ourselves into issues in the future. And the CAB um, should oversee the CAB board, the FQHC clinics, and we have to make a clear delineation and protect that so that it doesn't happen again. So I don't know if that answers your question. But. I mean, it, it does. So how long did this application process take? When, when, when did this process fire up a year ago? Uh, I think I filed, I, I think we did it. And I think, I don't know if Heather was the one that actually did it or Catherine Horner, but I think it was like last um, fall. Yeah. Uh, 
like maybe October. I mean, they immediately contacted us. Yeah. So uh, I, I have nothing but huge congratulations. And then my second comment is with regard to the IOP and John George. And again, uh, uh, context is everything. Not 18 months ago, this board was uh, entertaining uh, presentations to shutter the IOP because it was it was a, a non-fiscal performer. But uh, Madam CFO, I'm seeing green here. Can you talk to me about, about that switch? Sure, so uh, basically most of the patients in the IOP program are Medicare patients and there's very specific rules the way that you have to bill. And we were not set up appropriately and when we went on Epic, we mirrored the incorrect setup. Um, there's some other issues that I won't get into, but, but basically we were not doing it correctly. And I think the, um, the operations folks said, hey, you guys, you know, we've talked to other people who do this and their financials are not in the same situation as ours. And they found this consultant who then helped us revamp the way that we bill for the program. And now we have you know, a CAO whose attention is John George and the IOP program and working with staff to make sure we have appropriate documentation, care plans, and we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're being paid. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but she's also got a step down um, approach here with this new, uh, you know, we had these huge lengths of stay, which are not appropriate, right? Yeah. It should be able to move on to the next level of care. Uh, I, I see James's hand is up, and so I think maybe I should let James uh, wait here. Thank you very much, Kim, and you were doing a great job. I just wanted to, you know, chime in. You noted at the outset that we can't really speak to what the prior administrations were thinking, but I would just offer that for us, when Kim brought both of these ideas, well, certainly the idea around um, FQHC, it was kind of a house money. We're playing with house money because they'd already turned us off. And so why would we not at least try to revisit it? And clearly we were successful and that's a positive thing. In regards to IOP, um, you know, I, I really have to give kudos to, to Mark Fratsky um, for having an open mind. Mark and I went on a listening tour um, to the IOP, um, well, virtually, but also physically went and talked to the staff. And they talked about this consultant that they really wanted us to talk to. We, we did, we ultimately engaged them. And then we had Whiffley um, essentially do a reality check on what was proposed and it came back positive. And so um, we are now in a much better place in regards to that program. And I think it's, at the end of the day, it's starting with yes, um, having an open mind to the possibilities that things can be done differently and not presuming to know all the answers. Thank you for that comment, James. And uh, back on the FQHC, uh, in case there are some people listening who aren't sure where the benefit's coming from, isn't it true that the difference that you get when, you're, when you get that FQHC designation is that you're cost reimbursed instead of on a fee schedule and that if you're reimbursed with your cost, you also get to pull into your reimbursement some of the hospitals, some of the, over, some of the organizations overall overhead that represents your proportional share. And you're, so you're not only getting paid for your, your 
your volume, but you're getting reimbursed for a portion of the total hospital overhead that you're not, get, you're not getting without the FQHC. Is that still the case? You are absolutely correct. That is exactly it. And you know, just to give you a, an order of magnitude, like a, a, a Medicare visit, and this is just one level visit. Let's say it's 85 or $86 for a visit. Well, you know, we're, we're going to be 350 maybe maybe more per visit as an FQ when our costs with that overhead are paid. So it's a big difference. So it's a very valuable designation that we got. So congratulations on that. Yes. And All right. Any other questions or comments? And I apologize if I'm not seeing everybody. So just yell if you're not getting called on. I'd like to add kudos to our uh, CEO and COO for taking seriously the needs of the staff and their, their requests for help, because I think they were uh, reaching out to many members of our board to figure out what to do and, and how to get help. And they had been for years from before I was ever a trustee and before James became our CEO and Mark became our COO. So, you know, taking the time to do this kind of discovery uh, not only saved a valuable program, but is becoming beneficial to our health system in, in numerous ways, while our community is in need of behavioral health care in a major way. So, you know, good job on slowing down. And good attention to the detail of what we've needed on these programs. And obviously it just points out the almost absurd complexity of billing for healthcare, uh, which would be remedied to a great degree by single payer. Uh, imagine if we didn't have to deal with all these different arcane billing and coding requirements uh, because we only had one source of payment and one source of billing. Um, but that's the world we live in. All right, we're gonna uh, therefore close out item uh, C2. Item C3 is a discussion on the committee charter um, and Frankly, I'm not sure how to go about this. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our time and I don't wanna go through a discussion on every one of these specific responsibilities. Uh, I'm wondering what reactions members of the committee have had to looking at this charter. Uh, Alan, I, I, I did read through it and I think there's, um... I think there's a lot of changes that need to be made to it, but I don't think today, tonight is the time. Can we move it to the, our next meeting? Yeah, I'm just wondering how to, I think there are a lot of changes too. Just for an example, I see a couple of places on here where I think uh, discussion of uh, being responsible for internal control items and, and uh, reviews of external audits really probably belong with uh, the Audit and Compliance Committee rather than the Finance Committee. And I wonder if this charter may predate the establishment of the Audit Committee. I don't, I don't know, but that makes me think that that might be the case. It's heavy in operations and light on strategic planning. Mr. Chair, may I, may I offer that uh, we, we get to allow ourselves to vote and have dialogue and discussion on this. I think a retreat is 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 going to be necessary soon as Huron is coming to the probably three quarter point on their on their uh, strategic planning. So I was going to put out a poll for when our next uh, uh, retreat can be, 
I, I'm striving to not make it a full day one, but I think this would be a great housekeeping uh, discussion across all committee charters uh, for the retreat. What what were your thoughts on that, Mr. Chair? Well, I, I kind of would hate to see us spend half of a retreat on committee charters. Oh, no, no. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I bet you this could probably be done in uh, 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Let's, so, let's, but let's I, I might suggest on. is that um, uh, Splend and I and whoever else has any particular critiques, issues, or revisions, or additions, deletions to this finance committee charter, maybe write them out. Um, yeah, Trustee Fox, that sounds, uh, and you could send it to, uh, or any member of the board can uh, maybe redline it and send it to the clerk of the board, okay. and so, we can agendize it at the retreat or All right, so Splend, if you wouldn't mind doing that, uh, yes, yeah, can I can I ask Ahmad to send a Word version to us by email? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. And I have several, and uh, and uh, Splend, thanks for the time you spent on it. Uh, why don't we send our proposed revisions to uh, Tirana, and then uh, we can take it up maybe uh, as an item at the retreat, uh, Mr. Chair, if that's how you would like to do it. But hopefully, in a way that we wouldn't be spending too much retreat time on this item. I would agree with you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So I, I, you, thank you for setting tone. I will make that message to uh, all the committee chairs to have discussion of revisions of their committee charters. And hopefully this would just be a read and vote item uh, at, at a retreat if, okay. if, work, if the pre-work is done. We probably have about you know a month or so. Okay. All right, so Ahmad, we'll look for the word version uh, of that. Uh, okay, that brings us to our final action item, which is item C, uh, item D, uh, the renewal of the agreement with critical care physician partners, uh, who basically, uh, uh, I guess, are, are, you could call this group intensivists. Is that the correct nomenclature? Uh, yes, that, that's correct. Trustee Fox, this is Felicia Torner-Benny. I'm happy to speak to the contract if you would like. Okay, please go ahead. Um, good evening. Hi. Um, I'm sorry. I'm not on on video. I'm calling from the beautiful but cold Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, oh my God. And um, uh, about critical care physician partners. So this story here um, begins at Alameda Hospital, actually decades ago when we had when we had many years of doctors Deutsch and Lowry covering critical care at Alameda Hospital. They gave notice to Alameda Health System that they had decided to pull out of critical care coverage. I believe the notice was towards the end of March 2021. At that time, uh, East Bay Medical Group, um, though they didn't have a lot of staff, stepped in and started covering the critical care unit at Alameda Hospital starting June 1st, uh, 2021. However, it became clear by this past fall that East Bay Medical Group just did not have the staff. And so after meeting with Dr. Uh, Feeney and Dr. Achilles Warren, um, East Bay Medical Group gave AHS notice that they were going to pull out of critical care coverage um, at Alameda Hospital. We quickly did uh, some research about what our options were, and we found a group called Critical Care Physician Partners. They are local, uh, locally based 
critical care pulmonology physicians, though they will just be contracting with us at Alameda for critical care coverage. Uh, we entered into a short bridge contract with them. Until then, we got to this one. They will cover 24-7, 365. Uh, and at that, you know, that gives us time to look at our critical care services across the system as East Bay Medical Group critical care staffing stabilizes. And so they're, they're highly regarded and they've already started working and uh, I'm hearing great things about them. Any questions for Dr. Tornabeni? Would anybody care to make a motion to approve the proposal? I'll make the motion to approve. Second. Okay, can we have a vote? Uh, Madam Clerk? Yes, Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteem. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Slendario. Aye. The motion passes, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, anything anybody has to bring forward before we adjourn the meeting? All right. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, I don't think we need a motion to adjourn. Is that correct? Okay. That's correct. Chair Fox. All right. Uh, we are adjourned. Good night, everybody. Good night.